Hello, my name is Paul Kearney. I'm Professor of Politics and Public Policy. And this is a series of short podcasts to accompany my series of blog posts, which introduce key public policy concepts and theories in 1,000 words. This one is on critical policy studies and a narrative policy framework. And it's in particular, it's worth listening to the podcast on combining insights and reading up on the, the book's conclusion and the article on standing on the shoulders of giants. If you think back to that discussion, remember it was one way of combining insights was to engage in a so-called you know, tongue-in-cheek policy shootout uh, to determine which theories are most worthy of our investment. So it was kind of tongue-in-cheek, but also you know a kind of crucial way to say this: is, these are the theories uh, that we should pay most attention to. You've got to you've got to come up with some kind of rules unless it's just a popularity contest. So you might see them described as follows. So, you know, here are some kind of conditions of good theories. They, their methods should be explained so they can be replicated by others. Their concepts should be clearly defined, logically consistent, and give rise to empirically falsifiable hypotheses. Their propositions should be as general as possible. They should set out clearly what the causal processes are. And these theories and hypotheses should be subject to empirical testing and revision. Now, I said in the other podcast that, you know, many, or if not most of us, will, th- will find many or all of these aims to be intuitively appealing, but also problematic at the same time. And in, in that other podcast, I talk about the, the practical problems. That means, for me, that I don't think anyone is actually following these rules to the extent set out here. But I think that's an, a neat segue to critical policy analysis or critical policy studies. Because although that's a very broad term to describe a very wide collection of texts, um, which which relates even to an even kind of wider um, phrase like post positivism and you know methods like discourse analysis, I think it's still a, a good way into uh, you know finding out what these studies have in common. Now in this case, I think they all kind of coalesce around an important debate in policy studies about how we do good research. Now, I think to make it sound nice and dramatic, I would say imagine a heated debate between the late Paul Sabatier, on the one hand, representing this this, uh, shootout idea, and on the other hand, Frank Fisher, who would represent, you know, for our purposes, you know, it's polar opposite. So, so, yeah, so Sabatier, you know, you might associate him with representing, defending these rules, and Fisher the alternative. So Fisher describes uh, the failings of this so-called positive, positivist policy science to describe uh, and explain policy making, even, even in its own terms. In particular, I think Fisher takes to task the idea of objective science, in which we can separate facts from values and accumulate knowledge using these kind of scientific tenets, you know, such as hypothesis generation, Revision, falsification. Now, this kind of argument ties in with one of the big questions about the nature of the world, how we can study it, how we understand it, uh, the extent to which it exists independently of our knowledge or experience of it, and the extent to which our concepts correspond to it. Now, I don't think I've got the time or inclination to go through the, you know, that kind of your whole discussion of the philosophy of science, but I think this kind of debate reflects and sums up that, that wider discussion we have about what is science and how does it relate to the, the world.
Now, Fisher uh, stresses the, the social context in which knowledge is produced. To argue that scientists do not produce what you might uh, call objective truth, instead they're part of scientific communities which produce a certain kind of knowledge according to the rules of that scientific community or that, you know, or that community. And that some professions following some rules receive more respect than others uh, because there are notional hierarchies of knowledge production in which some communities benefit and others do not. So it's, you know, to some extent it's a, it's a question of power rather than objectivity. Now this shifts our focus to the idea that you have different groups who interpret the social world in often very different ways rather than uncover its truths. And that provides one case for considering the value of many, often less respected approaches, even if they do not follow the same so-called positivist rules. Now I think that's an important conclusion, particularly in the context of this series, because most of the theories I discuss, I think, would be described by Fisher and colleagues as positivist or empiricist. Um, and indeed, you know, along with a focus on uh, other issues, you know, for example, you know, the intersection between feminism and policy studies, uh, my aim is to provide more posts on alternatives like this. Now, in the meantime, uh, perhaps ironically, I'm going to give you another example of something that would be described by and colleagues as another positivist theory. Now it's good, it's useful for our term because there's a live debate here about the extent to which uh, so-called positivist and post-positivist approaches can be reconciled. So, that, so let's talk about the narrative policy framework which is interesting because one of its key aims is to take insights from critical policy analysis, interpretive studies, about the importance of interpreting and framing the world and using them to produce work that would satisfy the kinds of criteria associated with Sabati and the shootout. Now, it seems quite simple in those terms, but we think these are fundamental, fundamentally different approaches to the world. You, you see what's going to come next. So the NPF's advocates argue that, you know, although the study of policy narratives, often using discourse analysis, is associated strongly with post-positivist scholarship, they can be examined in the same sort of systematic, empirical manner. You know, that's a kind of paraphrase. And that the study of narratives can be used to reconcile, you know, these positive, post-positive studies. You know, you can, you can combine their insights. This is kind of the ultimate attempt to combine the insights of different studies. So the NPF seeks to measure empirically or quantify how narratives are used in policymaking. So a narrative is a stylized or hugely simplified account of the origins, aims and likely impacts of policies. These narratives are used strategically to reinforce or oppose particular policy measures. Then they talk about narratives having uh, you know, a bit like a play. They have a setting, they have characters, they have plot and a moral, a simple moral. And they can be compared to marketing as a form of persuasion based on appealing to an audience's beliefs rather than uh, objective facts. So the NPF draws on psychological theories to suggest that people will pay attention to certain simple stories because they're boundedly rational. You know, they seek shortcuts to gather sufficient information 
and they're prone to accept simple stories that confirm their biases, exploit their emotions, and, and you know, or, for example, come from a source they trust or build on things they already understand. So that ties up very neatly with other things we've talked about in this series. Yeah, so that's so far so good. So as discussed, this description would not look too much out of place within the literature on argumentation and persuasion within uh, you know, the, the critical, you know, critical um, policy studies. And it seems to me there's nothing inherently post-positivist about identifying how people use information selectively to try to persuade people about the merits of an argument. Okay. And the same might be said for analysing that process, you know, discourse analysis. If we define it very broadly as a study of the meaning of language in context by examining use of statements within specific contexts. Now, it may have become associated with one philosophy, but it need not follow inevitably that one's choice regarding you know, how you understand the world, how you, uh, you know, seek information you know, in ontology and epistemology, it's not inevitable that you would then link to a particular method or that a particular method can be claimed exclusively by one group of scholars. Nevertheless, you know, this is a social enterprise as well as a, an academic one. So the topic raises important problems about how we combine the insights of policy studies when they may be produced by people with fundamentally different ways of understanding, describing and seeking to explain the world. And we often describe the potential for those views to be incommensurable. You know, not only do people not agree on what the facts are or on, on how you understand the world, but they don't agree on the language in which you discuss these things. So, you know, there may be a point in which you just give up trying to translate. So, two different kinds of scholar may study narratives and even draw on a form of discourse analysis, but see their task very differently and find it difficult to produce a common language, you know, beyond a superficial language, to determine the meaning and significance of their results. And I think you would see that in a practical sense in the, the separation of approaches in particular journals and even in particular panels of conferences and, and, and separate, separate conferences themselves. So, you know, if you were being, uh, you know, if you were really ramping up the differences, you might say, well, one camp sees itself as the purveyor of value-free knowledge to settle policy debates. Another describes socially constructed knowledge used to aid deliberation. But I think these, these kinds of descriptions and debates seem exaggerated and artificial. So I don't think anyone really um, pursues that form of naive empiricism that I just described there. But it's difficult to ignore these distinctions because they seem important to people in the field. So for me, this is a you know, brilliant puzzle to look at. What is it that separates scholars here? And what is it that scholars think separates them? Uh, given that they only have so much knowledge of each other, you know, it almost resembles that sort of devil shift or the separation into coalitions that you find in the, in the ACF. So then you might ask, well, can their beliefs and approaches be reconciled? And actually, do people want to try? You know, you shouldn't assume that just because there are these differences that people might try and reconcile approaches. It may be, there may be a greater incentive to try and dominate proceedings or to, to, you know, to, to maintain one coalition based on your beliefs. So, in my opinion, you know, this discussion is crucial even if you end up rejecting, rejecting critical policy analysis as an important way of seeing and researching the world. It should make you pause and reflect about how you understand the world 
and make you re-examine re the assumptions you make when you engage in research. Now, beyond that, the exchanges between each you know, camp can be quite entertaining, however fruitless these exchanges prove to be. Because, you know, if you imagine, if we, are, if we are as flawed as individuals as the policy actors we study, you know, they, we say they make decisions quickly with limited information, often based on their emotions, habits, gut feelings. Why would you expect us as scholars to agree about how the world works and how we should study it? You know, what makes us any different? Okay, thank you.